بسم الله الرحمن الرحیم نحمده و نسلی علی رسوله الكریم اما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala we see blessings upon the Prophet peace be upon him okay so continuing our exploration of Surat An-Nisa any initial questions thoughts reflections by by uh, anyone about anything quick question for you yes um i'm sorry i missed class yesterday but when um should i expect to um the upload on your soundcloud that's a really good question hmm. uh, I'm, it depends on what time it's essentially the distance between the end of this class and iftar um uh, so yesterday's class went even way past seven o'clock, uh, almost very, very close to iftar. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Um, so hopefully soon, hopefully soon. It is on my mind, on my list of things. I'm behind by at least two, maybe three classes. I will get Sounds there. Thank you. Yeah, and Nords too. And Nords too. Say it again. Nords, Nords. Okay, that that I'm about uh, about a week and a half behind on figuring that out. And then Ahant. Yeah, so um Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Where are my manners? Um, yeah, so, speaking of that. Oh, you, you notice that Dilnaz aren't in class too, right? Yes, yes. I know, I know. That's my friend. Um, so, um, uh, so last class you had uh, commented on uh, the common and then the actual like application of an ayah. Yeah. So the common is you read the ayah and you apply it. The actual is you take a look at the usul, uh, the, uh, the, the like maqasid, and then the orf, yes. and then you apply it. Could you define those three terms for us? Yeah. The usul, can you all see it on my screen, the note? Yeah. Yes. The usul is essentially referring to the interpretation of the ayah itself, uh, as though it is a codified statement. And part of that, you're evaluating how clear is it? Uh, um, so we would use two terms commonly. Is it ati? Is it categorically clear? It is dhani. Is it, you know, a little bit ambiguous? Uh, if it's a hadith, what is the level of authenticity? What is its level of widespreadness? You're looking at all of that. So, but fundamentally, you're looking at what does the ayah say? What does the hadith say? You may be looking at a number of ayahs and hadith that seem to be pointing to the same direction but you're using those with the text that is being said. The maqasid is uh, arguing that the entire body of our primary sources, meaning the Quran and the, the, the Sunnah, the Hadith, uh, are all uh, theologically, ethically consistent. And thus they prioritize certain things. And so you'll see a very common listing of five or six things that uh, everyone agrees upon that they prioritize. Preservation of life. From start to finish, even the passages on war, even the passages on, on um, uh, whatever you call it, um, what is it? Um, the passages on, you know, the death penalty and such. But of course, everything else there's still a consistent theme of preservation of life, preservation of religion, uh, preservation of lineage, which would include child knowing who the father is, who the mother is, the parents knowing their child are just preserving the lineage in the future, uh, preserve, preservation of intellect, uh, 
preservation of wealth, and then uh, the preservation of dignity. The list is actually much longer. This is the common that you'll find where everybody agrees. And, and so these are commonly referred to as the higher aims or simply, but kind of a little bit off the spirit of the law. You have usul would be the letter of the law. Maqasid is the spirit of the law. And the argument of maqasid is that the, uh, the ayah, word of Allah, no doubt about that. There might be cases where its application is counter to what the intent of the application is. So a big example of that in the history of Islam is when Omar was the Khalifa and people were stealing. So what's the punishment for stealing? You know, assuming you're convicted and, you know, no doubt and all that, it's cutting off your hand. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dania, for the, for the, the live expression. Okay. And then <clears throat> Omar puts a hold on it. He puts a moratorium on it. Why? Because they were in a famine, and it's the state's responsibility to provide you with at least rations. So if you're stealing, even though you have food, if you're stealing food, even though you have food, there's a problem. But they were stealing because they didn't have food. And so the point here, which is hard for many people to digest, even though everybody lives it, is that you cannot apply every ayah in every universal context, because in some contexts, it'll actually be destruction. And so, so everybody actually lives this, nobody admits it, because I'm guessing nobody here is in a society where you cut off someone's hand if they steal, right? And, you know, that's been my whole life for, for, for the entirety of my life, right? Even for stealing, except maybe if I'm upset, the thought doesn't even cross my mind okay, that this person's hand has to be cut off. It's more like, hey, do I call the police or whatever it is I do, right? And so, so that's the argument of the maqasid, that you're looking at the text, you're also looking at the higher aims to evaluate, is this application of this text sound for this moment? But then you're adding a third thing, which is orf, which some translate as custom or culture. What are your normal methods in your particular culture and how to do X, Y, Z? And then you're looking, do your normal practices fulfill what are the higher aims if they potentially contradict the maqasid? And, and so putting this into practice in some ideal sense, if you just implement the Quran, suddenly all of society is going to be in order. No. If you suddenly impose the Quran on people, you might literally turn a lot of people away from Islam. And so you might literally have a scenario where something that is haram might actually be better in a particular setting for someone than something that is fard. And so there's another classic example of this, where you had these, these fighters uh, who become Muslim, and their teacher uh, uh, does not stop them from drinking. And then the teacher gets criticism, and you know he's literally allowing them to drink, and people are saying, how can you do this? 
And he says, look, when they drink, you know, they, they have a good time and they'll just fall asleep. Uh, in their past life, uh, looking at what they were like, if I'd stop them from drinking, they're going to go rape and pillage. And it is safer, it is better that I allow them right now to drink than, you know, restrain this. So that's the argument of of Maqasid. Uh, Ahant, what do you think? No, I mean, you know, I, I think that uh, goes hand in hand uh, with the first 11 ayahs or 13 ayahs. You know, we're talking about the huge ayah about inheritance, but the real uh, maqasid of the, the surah so far is the first 11 ayahs. It's those qualitative like values of, of taking care of your family and speaking kindly. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if you take that uh, uh, maqasid, then you know at least uh, you can di you know like digest you know this eleventh ayah here, mm -hmm. even if it contradicts the the makasid or the oath of your society. So yeah, I mean as a general principle, uh, you want to try to default to following the ayah, but the example of Omar is literally saying, "All right, we're putting this on hold for now." Yeah. and a different example uh, in America. I mean, the Quran is very clear. You have the death penalty, right? Or you have forgiveness plus blood money. Uh, in America, should we support legislation for the death penalty in 2023? I'd say absolutely not. Because what's also built in on the issue of crime and punishment is a certain health of a society. And, and so, for example, in the case of the famine, people were not provided with their basic necessities you know, for food. And then you can assume by extension, you know, healthcare and all of those things. And so if you implement uh, many of these passages in the wrong setting, and again, most the common person does not understand this, uh, you can actually literally cause the exact inverse of what it is supposed to do. So even when we speak philosophically, sharia, it's the, the meaning of the word sharia is the path that leads to water, the path that leads to relief. Right, the same word that Sharia comes from is like street or path. And then the most, most, most basic philosophy of Sharia is remove harm. And if we take it a step above that, it's remove harm and promote benefit. And then if he's taken above that, then it gets steadily more complex. But it may be, and this is hard for most people to understand, the application of the Quran or the Hadith in a given setting might be harm. Uh, hold on. How do we differentiate between Urf and um, and Makasit? Urf is your local uh, culture. So the easiest way to think about it is, uh, I think it was last year, or it might have been the year before that, we looked at the big aya on taking out loans. And, and so we have this big aya with the prescription on loans, which is basically saying, write it down if you're taking out a loan. The person who's getting the loan should dictate the terms. Um, and you should have witnesses that can confirm everything, right? And then, of course, there's more details that uh, if the person who's taking uh, taking on the loan is um, uh, is not uh, of sound mind, let's say they're a child, someone should be speaking on their behalf. And then we have the whole issue of two men or one man and two, witness, or two women. But the bare minimum we're saying is write it down. 
the person taking out the loan uh, dictates the terms and, and you have witnesses. Okay. Now, issue number one is that in most societies in history, most societies in history are patriarchal. The, not speaking of patriarchy as something bad, but patriarchal in the sense that uh, the, the, the husband would work outside the house, the mother would work inside the house, right? And then, uh, and so often women were not in public space beyond maybe going to the market. In our society, gender is interchangeable, right? And so, so the point being that the question becomes immediately, if I'm in Chicago in 2023, I'll read those specific passages and think, okay, this is kind of a, kind of prickly for me. It makes it sound like a woman is half a man, even though technically the eye is not saying that I'm inferring that. But aside from how I receive the eye, the culture in our society is that I can go online right now and take out a loan that doesn't involve any humans in the process. Okay. That's the norm in our society at this moment. And me, in terms of dictating the terms, I may not like the terms of this, this loan. I'll go to this loan. It, there's a marketplace from which to choose. And it's recorded. So it's both recorded and, and preserved for witnessing. And so if this fairness is there, then we can use the method we have in our society for taking out loans. See what I'm saying? The interesting thing about the inheritance ayah is how many times it says, this is fard. So the general opinion for the loan ayah is that it's a recommendation. It's not fard, right? But this ayah, literally at the end of the first inheritance line, says, this is fard. Faridah min Allah. Okay? And, and that's where things get even, even more interesting. But the option here that takes place is how would I do with my wealth before, you know, before I die? Let's say, okay, I still need my own living expenses. I don't know when I'm going to die. Okay, so I still keep a certain amount, you know, for my own living expenses at whatever my level of comfort is. And if I have wealth beyond that, uh, I'm free to keep it in my bank or to pass it around to my children how I think they should receive it, which is sort of the discussion we had yesterday. Uh, but then if when I die, let's say, you know, then I die from a car accident, I still have some wealth and it'll be distributed this way. You know. uh, another way to think about this is culturally, what do we do in our society? Uh, I, uh, I keep forgetting to ask Nadia who works on this stuff. Uh, I think, well, we could probably Google this. If you don't have a will, uh, I suspect the state takes your money. Yeah, so obviously you want to have some sort of a will. So I believe they 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 look at if nine one you call nine one one as uh, for for example someone is died right yeah so they will uh, in Canada in Canadian law they will look up at your most apparent places maybe in the drawers that if you have a will there yeah they so will let's say we don't find a will yes then they will it will be the like your in province Illinois, law will apply. in Illinois it's they contact the next Ken okay. Wasn't there a case where this guy um, left like $11 million and they went all the way back to his European ancestors because he had no living? This was recent. 
don't know idea. I know there's a guy on the south side who had $11 million. I only remember that number. Uh, but yeah, so it makes sense that they're going to hold on to the money and then perhaps look for your uh, look for your ancestors in that Google search that you'll saw. But um, so the point I'm making is that that's the norm in this society, which would potentially contradict the higher aims. You know. Danya. So on that note of like having control while you're alive of your yeah. money, if you put it into a trust, but then have um, the stipulation of you can only use this at X, Y, Z time, let's say my death, yeah. is that wrong? Yeah. It's still fine. Because yeah. technically you, even it's, with that, okay, okay. It's, it's, it's separate from, uh, it's separate from the inherited money. Gotcha. Cool. And an example of that is, uh, and you'll, you'll get this in the recording, inshallah. An example of that is that in Surat al-Baqarah and Saudi, I didn't look it up yet. Uh, there, uh, the husband is prescribed to save one year's worth of expenses in case of his death, right? So that the wife can live for a year, you know, and that's separate from the other stipulations that that you know the the widow should should stay in her home for for four months and such, um, and so so the point being that that would be separate from the inheritance. Olfat. Um, I, I was reflecting on the part where um, in the ayah it says fard, and then the yeah. other ayah hadulullah, yeah. and I was. Wondering whether it may have been because women went from being property to owning property. So Allah's mm -hmm. emphasizing, like, you're taking this seriously. There's no negotiation here. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you're raising an interesting point in a couple of different ways. So as prickly as this ayah is for someone either in the contemporary world or the contemporary West, but I think it's a contemporary world, especially urban urban centers throughout the world uh this would have been comparably tricky in trick a prickly in the opposite way you know for people of the arabian peninsula who might be brand new muslims and all the rights and agency that is being given to 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 women they themselves would also have to go through their own struggle in the opposite way in okay now wealth is going to your wife wealth is going to your daughter wealth is going to your sister to your mom because we're speaking of an era where a father may have 10 wives and then when he dies, his son inherits them, right? That's what they're, that was akin to their norm. And so, so uh, it could be to emphasize this for that, uh, for, for that audience. Uh, but the loan uh, uh, doesn't have that type of language, you know, where the loan is also the loan saying that one man or two women uh, one man, two men, or one man and two women. Um, that is also giving agency to women, um, but we don't have similar language there. You know, the exact question you're raising would be the process of deliberating. How do we find these answers? Literally, the same type of questions that uh, that people uh, in the the past uh, would have asked. And so, what are we saying? That it's beginning with literally the interpretation of language. That's how much of uh, Islamic law starts before getting into the real world make sense what do you think Wolfut? an interesting point and subhanallah how many people interpret ayahs and they have zero knowledge of the language mm -hmm. 
<laughs> right here. No, I'm kidding. So, so uh, any other questions, uh, reflections on this? Uh, Zishan is saying it will be interesting to see how AI uh, is going to, yeah, who knows what AI is going to do to everything. You know, uh, we'll see. Any other questions uh, specifically about these ayahs or about any of this in general? Okay, so if not moving forward, the second ayah is also continuing uh, in terms of more details on, on the specifics. Uh, the only thing I want to draw your attention to is just this interesting term, kalala. Uh, which is also a big question. What do you have if you have no descendants? I'm not actually raising this to to discuss this as much as something to to, to keep in mind because uh, in in these books you find that issue um, getting debated. But bring us to ayah 13. These are the limits set by Allah. Whoever obeys Allah and His Messenger, He will admit them to gardens beneath which rivers flow, where they will live forever. That is a great success. And so this is a concept you find over and over again. The idea of hudud. One way to understand hudud is that it's often referring to the legal punishments. Another way to understand hudud is limits of conduct. And so imagine a circle, and this I'm literally plagiarizing for, for well, almost all this is plagiarized from teachers, but uh, imagine you have a circle, like you have a horse tied to a stick. And the horse can travel anywhere up to the maximum of that stick, of that rope, and anywhere in between. That's the idea of hudud, okay? which is a little bit different than command. Okay? Saying, do anything within this limit. Okay? Uh, Sabrine, you have a question? Yeah. Um, did you guys discuss 12 while I was... Uh... 12 was more of a continuation. Oh, okay. It's okay. almost as though uh, 11 and 12 are all one big concept oh, that okay. the prophet spoke of as two different ayahs. Oh, okay. Because I had the question um, for, yeah, for well, it talks about how, like, if the man, um, he gets to inherit half his wife's wealth, but the woman gets a quarter if they have no children, if they both have no children. Mm -hmm. If so they she... have a child, uh, then a quarter. But what is your question? Oh, yeah, right there. You're right. You're correct. Yeah. Yeah. So if they both don't have children and they inherit each other's wealth, whoever dies first or whatever, um, the man gets half, but the woman, if they have no children, she only gets a quarter. So, yeah, where, like. so where's the rest going? That's after taking care of debt. So then where's the rest? That uh, uh, is probably addressed by different parts. Uh, that are probably here or here, uh, but that's beyond me. I mean, if it's a scenario you want me to look up, I can I can definitely look up. Inshallah, no, I'm, but, I'm just yeah. curious as to why it was so specific. Like it's very mathematically specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the situation seems similar. You know, they have no children, but mm -hmm. the man is getting half, and the woman is only getting a quarter. Yeah. I'm any thoughts about uh, anybody? I'm. Is it because the man is going to also give to his parents, his siblings? Well, I would go back to my point, possibly as a as a thesis that I have not tested, that maybe we would find that other people would also be getting a part of the wealth. 
you know and and so what we definitely seem to be taking place that seems to be uh clear here is if a woman dies there's a structure for inheritance if a man dies there's a, a different structure for for inheritance yes. but this this is beyond only the very very minimal stuff uh, this is not something i've studied very much but, oh, okay. but there is a purpose and there is like a more i don't know defined reasoning behind the clear differences well the 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 issue seems to be that in most societies the earner of wealth is the husband the uh, the, the the man the one who is working taking care of the house often by extension taking care of the kids will be the woman and so then the default seems to be in that direction that's i think the easy simplistic way to read all this but why is it broken down with these specific levels we'd literally say Eleno's best even for those societies okay i mean one recurring theme when you see how much it's spread out this is the point i only touched on very briefly yesterday is is that it is spreading the wealth even if it's not spreading the wealth equally according to genders it is spreading the wealth across family members uh, uh that one of the techniques in history for a family to keep wealth in the family was that all the wealth goes to the oldest child the oldest son and then everybody else may get a little bit uh beyond that you know for example you know just like how is a monarchy usually handed off it's the oldest son becomes a king yeah and then so if you think of whatever are the big families of the world usually that's how inheritance was taking place that the oldest son will get the the biggest chunk to keep it in the family okay and here however it seems to be the opposite impulse it's spreading out wealth quite a bit to make that point even further uh, a recurring theme throughout the whole quran and throughout uh, the abrahamic religions in general seems to be one of anti-hoarding this is not moving beyond inheritance but just the idea of savings zakat is based on your savings right not on your income we're taught to give sadaqah all day long to, with every movement every joint and then on top of that i was suggesting that the reward of me doing sadaqah to my kids prior to me dying with almost all my wealth is of a higher reward than following the ayah itself for the simple reason that i'm doing it first um the recurring theme throughout the entire quran seems to be one uh not anti-savings but anti-hoarding make sense yeah so so actually uh, continuing your point so could could we say that this is a sort of encouragement that you distribute your wealth like rather than saving it for a longer period of time finish your wealth ahead of time yeah. so you don't have to go through these things Mm -hmm. and uh and 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 while you are like in your best of senses and health you can manage your wealth in that way and distribute it like as uh, a as a principle yeah as a rule no but as a principle absolutely you know and it so it's basically what a parent already does with her children right uh, a normal healthy parent is going to be taking care of each child according to the child's needs matched with the parent's ability ability in terms of wealth ability, ability in terms of time ability in terms of skill and so no part of this ayah says you should save your money for the purposes of inheritance 
but because of how detailed these ayahs are, it's easy for us to think of this as the primary recommendation. And what I suggested yesterday, this is the last resort. As opposed to me continuously, you know, making the best of my wealth. There will be times where I have to save, like, for example, for college, you know, or for whatever investments. That's also part of this. But I'm not being negligent uh, about my wealth, especially in terms of its consequences on my family. Shayla. So, um, you know, of course, I'm still grappling with this, uh, these ayahs, these couple of ayahs too. Um, but I just wanted to understand um, for things like our house, for instance, mm. doesn't, you can't split a house into one half and totally. a quarter, right? So the house, for instance, is does not fall into this or our cars, things don't, right? It's just so, pure money. So uh, when it reaches the point of inheritance, everything would be included. How it gets divided up would still, in theory, fit these fractions. Uh, and so in one case, you keep the house as the house, but you're estimating perhaps its value in comparison with everything else you own. I noticed the, my, my hand raised up again just because my hands are. But anyway, uh, in another case, you know, that might be determined to be, okay, this is half of your wealth and then the cash and everything else. So things are included because you're literally giving your entire estate. So clothing would be included there. Clothing, which will only have sentimental value, will probably, in many cases, and I'm speaking from my, you know, middle-class American privilege, uh, you know, uh, may not be given as much attention um, as a house or as jewelry, right? The things will be included in all this. Meaning the easiest approach is you liquidate everything. Okay, but that might be that itself might come with cost, you know. But think of all the complexities that are involved when someone dies and figuring out what to do with their wealth. That would all be included. So, and I mean, that would also be part of, you know, so suppose hypothetically, whatever wealth I have, I designate it to whoever I want to give it to. Um, but I'm still living in my home until I die. So, I may change the ownership. So that, uh, you know, like literally I have a couple bank accounts where it's me and then one daughter and then me, me and one daughter, me and the other daughter. And, mm -hmm. and so when I die, they're owners, they're owners of that wealth without me doing anything regarding inheritance or even saying to them, this is your money. Make sense? Yeah. Sure. Uh, yes. And, and then somebody had asked a question about like the, the trust. How is the trust different than... So mm -hmm. this the trust is interesting because it's your wealth, but it's no longer your wealth. You know, depending upon the terms of the trust, it's now uh, under the legal ownership of the trust, and so it wouldn't be included in the inheritance. It's like a median point. It's yeah. not yours. It's not theirs. It's waiting for you to go, and then them reach a certain age or reach yeah. a certain condition to accept that. Yeah, it could be that the money gets freed after you die, or it could be the money gets freed after such and such child turns 18. You know, so I have a student who who uh, he inherited through a trust, 
And the people who are running the trust, I don't know if they're attorneys or accountants or it's a corporation or whatever, if he wants to take more money than what is specifically allotted for him, uh, he has to literally, you know, write out and get permission and such. So he's a convert. And so he wanted to give money for zakat purposes, uh, pulling from the trust. And so then I had to write a whole letter, you know, explaining what zakat was and this and that. And then, then they had to prove that um, the wealth was his. The wealth was put in the trust by his father long before his father passed away. You know? And so that was at that point when the father was alive, that was neither the father's money anymore nor was the son's money when the, when the father died then it became the son's money and then after a certain age probably 30 i forgot what it was then the son's gonna have full access to all the money so that comes down to the 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 terms you use for 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 the trust and such but it doesn't even have to be for a child it could be for an institution those are instruments we have in our society here uh sadia and then sabrine so I have two uh, follow-up questions about the trust. Thing. I mean, uh, one about trust and the other one is about um, inheritance of a house. So could a house become a trust? And Probably. Let us see why not. And so whoever... And then you can put in in, in the um, in the terms and conditions that so and so is allowed to live and use the house. Yep. Yes. Okay. Sabrina is our official expert on trust. Well, I used to work. I used to work at a law firm. So yes, you can place your house into a trust where it states that you know it's theirs so long as you're dead. Um, but so long as you're alive, it's you get to dwell in it. You get to do whatever, but you can't sell it if it's put in a trust. I think. Right. So after after your death, um, the inheritor, let's say the son or the daughter, gets to live in there. Yes, they they take claim to it. They can live in it. They could sell it. It's theirs. If their names are in the terms and conditions. Yes. Okay. Okay. And uh, the other question is that, so how does the, so if the father wants to give the house to some of his children, like let's say three of his children and not the rest of them, if he has more uh, while he's alive, can he do that? And does he have to do that? Does he have to do that in cash or could it be? So let's say if it's one son and two daughters. Yeah, I mean, it's his wealth. He can do whatever what he wants to do with it, whatever way. No, but like, does he have to give it like in a cash form or can he just say, okay, it's for three of you and you can live in it, but you cannot sell it. And oh, are you speaking of, uh, uh, the while he's, he's alive and then what after that okay meaning let's change it from a house to a car uh suppose you know father has a car and he wants to buy another car and he gives this car to one child and the other two not to them 
isn't he free to do that? Yeah, I mean, I understand that point, but what I'm I'm trying to understand that, let's say, if it's more than one, and yeah. so for the house specifically, so let's say he has one daughter and one, you know, son. So, like his, so let's say we have a, a father who has three kids. You know, one kid is uh, named uh, Sabrina, another kid is Shayla, another kid is Danya, and the fourth one's Sadia. Okay. But so, all these are women. <laughs> okay, you're fine, fine, fine. Okay. So okay. let's say uh, one kid is Khuram, another kid is Zishan, another kid is Omar, and the fourth one is Sadia. Okay. And this dad says, I'm going to give the house to the boys and not to Sadia. Is that your scenario or is your no, scenario? No, and the scenario is that he's going to give to one son and one daughter. Okay, so he's going to give it to to Zishan and Sadia. Yeah. But not to Khuram and Omar. Yeah. Yeah, he has the freedom to do that, doesn't he? Right. So then, uh, does it he, does does he have to give that in in the form of cash or the well, house to the, to the two that didn't get the house? You're saying the the, no, the, the no, house he can no, give to them, the, the and then one, they can he can write a you know he can change the ownership of the house to those two, and then they can decide you know whether you know they, they can share the house or they have to okay. liquidate it. Oh. Can he can he say that no, you have to live in the house, you cannot sell it when he's giving it to them? I don't um, think not once the ownership gets fully passed on to them. Yeah, that works. Yeah, Sabrina's point. And that and that will not have that, you know. Um, so in that case, it doesn't matter how much the son gets according uh, or the daughter gets according to the inheritance law, it can be equal. Uh, if you're adding what is given before inheritance yes. to what is given after inheritance, absolutely. Okay, perfect. All right. But you can also make it that the dad gives all the wealth to Sadia. Mm -hmm. And when he dies, there's nothing for the other boys to inherit. And that is not a sin. That is still perfectly fine. I feel like Sadia is trying to like plan out. Oh, yeah, totally. Her and her yeah. siblings' um, inheritance. Like, on her wall right now, she has the whole map and everything ready. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, I'm trying to figure out how to out inherit my siblings. Yeah. No, no, but I mean, <laughs> in reality, it sounds like uh, Sadi is looking for legit ways for things to equalize, right? Yeah. yeah. And and so, or to make it really guys, equal. You guys got the plan. <laughs> yeah, or the father could say, I hate all of you kids. I'm going to donate all of my wealth to, you know, Elon Musk, you know, whatever the case may be, right? <laughs> they all equal. Yeah. None other than Elon. Sabrine. Um, there's this, uh, how do you say methyl? Do you understand what methyl like is? Ex example? I guess, but it's like a, when you tell a story in sure. order for someone to gain a lesson out of, it's methyl that my dad likes to share about... This, this guy, um, when he died, he left um, the inheritance. He said, a treasure and all the money is buried under the home I built. And his sons went and tore up the house that he built. And in the treasure chest was a note that said, if you are men, rebuild the house yourself. Oh, nice. Does that... Um, <laughs> Make it to me that sounds legit. I mean, if my sons were lazy bums, I think that is a totally 
okay way to go about it but I'm saying like is that crossing the lines I guess if you're wait, 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 wait. walk me through this so dad says there's a treasure underneath the house the inheritance their inheritance the inheritance the... underneath the house yeah and so then they tear apart the house and then they find this treasure chest and it only has the note inside or it has yes. gold cones gold inside or something just the note that said if you were men rebuild this home yourself yeah, that would, that would be like the, the parting words from the dad. Yes. That's not really a will. Yeah. But yeah. That's, what, like, that's what I'm seeing. Like, he didn't leave them anything. I mean, he left them a house and then, you know, he's probably laughing all the way. Yeah. Okay, what's the lesson of this story? I want to know if that is not, like, it's if that's legit and now not i don't know if it's truly it's true i think it's a, like a lesson that my dad tells us to like you know pick yourself up by your own straps but oh I, that's the lesson <laughs> yeah. okay. i get that but i'm just curious to know like if someone truly does that are they crossing the line in god's eyes i mean i don't know i don't know what line would be crossed here um, because he didn't do it when he was alive and oh he, so he didn't do a will no right he just told them. He just. I, told guess, them. I guess if we're getting technical, he yeah. would have had to, you know, split up the 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 house or the value of the house among all the children. If that's all the wealth that he had, yeah, you know, and then if he had some closets, there's an even bigger inheritance underneath, and then the kids were, you know, the kids couldn't see in how their dad is, you know, a jokester or whatever. I mean, know. I think I think that's an awesome way to leave there. <laughs> yeah i don't really have an answer for you on that one you know um i don't know if i want to encourage you to try either but well, that's uh, why it's called the method <laughs> any other questions about anything at all i think they would still have the land they would get less money um, all right this is a this is a fun discussion <laughs> if we could have like separate from class but uh any other questions okay so, so using the little bit of time, getting to a, a little bit more forward movement on the ayahs. So, these are the limits set by Allah. Whoever obeys Allah, He will admit them to gardens. Uh, this is also a point to think about when we were speaking about the question of Do I feel that Allah values me fully? So, think of level one as the level of Islam, or oh, correction, correction. If I can't say yes to question one, that would be someone at the level of Islam. If I can say yes to question one, that becomes the level of Iman. Okay. Let, me refer, let me explain it using, you all can see my screen, yeah? So famous set of ayahs. Okay, so the Bedouin Arab, so imagine some Arab from the desert, comes to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and says, we have come to believe. Okay. We believe. The Prophet is being told to tell them, say, you have not come to believe. Instead, you should say, we have surrendered. Okay. You do not believe. But you should say, aslamna. So you don't have Iman, you have Islam. Okay. 
because faith, iman, has not yet entered into your heart. If you obey Allah and his messenger, he is not going to curtail, he's not going to deprive you of any of the reward of your deeds. Okay? And Allah is forgiving, merciful. So if I am struggling with all of these ayahs, okay, uh, um, that I don't have the full confidence in the ayahs themselves. We've already talked about the concern about the implementation and all that stuff. Uh, then potentially I'm at the level of Islam. I'll get the full reward of everything that I'm attempting in my attempts to obey Allah and his messenger. Okay. Which means that I'm probably obeying on some things and maybe falling short on some things. Allah is not going to deprive me of, of that. What does it mean to have Iman? This is the level to aspire to. Those who have Iman, so this is probably the best translation, those possessed of true faith. Those who have Iman are those who believe in Allah and His Messenger and have no doubt, number one. And they struggle in the way of Allah with their wealth and their souls. That's the level of Iman. The higher level, Ihsan, is that you've reached a point where it's as though you see Allah or Allah sees you. Okay. And so this plays out, especially in those ayahs that we struggle with. Everybody in this room, in this class, has ayahs that they struggle with, whether they admit it or not. Right? The gendered ayahs are, are, might be some of them. Then also we have the crime and punishment ayahs which would perhaps raise their own discussions. Like, for example, what's the punishment for two unmarried adulterers as they get whipped a hundred times? And the ayah on that's even scary. Don't let your compassion for them stop you from fulfilling Allah's command. And then if you add the sound hadith literature to it, then the punishment for a married adulterer is getting stoned to death. So the point I'm making is not the discussion of those ayahs. The point I'm making is that there are portions of the Quran that anybody, if they're being truly honest, uh, does have struggle with uh, to the point that they may not even implement them and might give themselves reasons or not think about why they don't implement. The goal is to reach a point where you reach a point where you have no doubt in this. It still doesn't mean that you're implementing everything, but you have full trust, even if the wisdom escapes you. That's the goal to get to. But even in the case of the ayahs on inheritance, the other point that I would bring up to consider is that if the Quran is speaking for all times, we often inverse that it's relevant for all times. No, it's speaking for all times, giving answers for all times. Good. And so, so I think we all understand that there are times in the past, uh, and maybe in the present, but outside of, let's say, the modern West, where, yeah, polygamy makes a lot of sense. It's the norm, and it is not a thing of abuse. And there are many, many contexts in the whole history of the world where uh, this type of divvying up, where the default seems to favor the men, makes sense in those cultures. Okay. Uh, 
here, this is listed as the default. The polygamy is listed as an exception that's allowed. Here, the it's not really a workaround. I'm still suggesting like I did yesterday, this is the last resort. In the same way that the Quran does not promote war, it speaks of war as the last resort. And then if you're going to go to war, here are terms for it. And so to frame this in an even another way, ask yourself, and this is not an answer to answer right now. This is an answer that might take you 20 years. If Allah were to speak about inheritance, what would be a better way? Now in Al-Baqarah, there are ayahs about inheritance that don't get into this detail. That were the first ayahs about inheritance. Basically saying, you know, when you die, make sure you, you hand off your money to, to your dependents and such. And then if the Quran left it at that, think of the benefits, which are pretty obvious. You have this, you have this freedom, but think of the detriments. And then likewise, for this system that Allah has given, the detriments are easy to figure out, explore the benefits. But the bigger point I'm making is see if you can come up with something better. Uh, uh, that can be in a book that is read for all times. And that's the point to think about. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Shela. I mean, is it possible also, because this is a book of all times, like perhaps like right now, you know, given our understanding, we can't really grasp why women would get half the inheritance, right? Um, but maybe in the future, you know, maybe, you know, men have evolved to a certain point and we're like, well, yes, of course, you know, men are more generous and this makes sense now. So it could be in a few more generations, this will make more sense. Absolutely. That's actually, there's a, uh, he's passed away. There was a, a professor of religious studies, I think it was at UCLA, who raised the question. He was a non-Muslim. He was a believer, a hardcore believer in Christianity. And he was famous for that. Because um, usually in academia, right? You know, you're not supposed to be a believer. And I don't mean that cynically. I'm saying that as a thing. And, but he was very open about being a believer. Uh, but he raised the question, why is it that the best generation of Islam only lasted 30 years, right? If the prophet is a prophet, the final prophet, peace be upon him, the Quran is the word of God. Why is it that its best implementation only lasted a couple a couple decades, right? So we're talking about the Sunni reading of history that ends essentially with Ali, right? Why did it only last that long? And he said one possibility is that Islam was actually ahead of its time. And so people uh, the fact that it lasted 30 years was a miracle for their time uh, but the world has not yet caught up to what islam uh, actually is which all the muslims are like yeah that's a great way to put it but you know Allah knows best uh it could be that 10 years from now this ayah seems completely fair and this gets into then our relationship with the text you know, in our relationship with the author of the text. So. And this is one of the things why I really appreciated Islamic law when I started studying it, uh, because then that gave the freedom to then try to look at all this from a practical perspective. 
that Islamic law is then going with the argument that this ayah was revealed 1400 years ago in a language, in a dialect of a specific population. So automatically we have to start interpreting. And then we have to figure out through what we construct as the higher aims of, of, of Islamic law, how do we implement all this? Islamic law for me was 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 a second revolution after going through the, you know, the Sunnah, the Quran, all that stuff, in the sense that it required us to try to figure out how to make all this practical. The limit of Islamic law is that on its own, related to the points we discussed briefly, is that it's not claiming to give us justice, though. And so justice is another thing that always has to be part of the frame. The closest thing to justice is the higher purposes. But when we only teach Islamic law and not teach the Quran, then justice gets thrown out the window. And that is the common way we teach Islam. We usually teach fiqh. You know, here's all the rules of this and that and this and that with no concept of justice. And that is part of why we have all the mayhem we have in so many of our Muslim societies. And your thoughts, Sabrina, your hand is up. I don't know if it's up from before or if it's newly up. Okay, no. Any other question? Uh, Ulfat. So when we say accept the A and that we may not understand the wisdom behind it, does it also include that we're taking into consideration the usul, the maqasid, and the of? If you have the capability of doing so, yes. Yeah. I mean, and then we're getting into someone who's going through the actual process of, of uh, adjudication. You know. But I'm just saying the eye on its own in terms of meaning what it says. You know. Are there ayahs that categorically say men are, or women are less than men? I'm not talking about the ayahs that can be interpreted that way. But are there ayahs that say that? I don't think so. Yeah. But even the wife of the Prophet, Umar Salama, in Medina, while the Prophet's receiving revelation, says, the Quran sounds like it's only talking to men. So... So what I'm also saying is nobody should feel bad about these concerns if the wife of the prophet herself is raising this concern. You know? And Aisha would also call out the prophet, peace be upon him. You know, like there's the, the one narration, if a woman, a donkey, or a black dog walks in front of you, you know, when you're praying, then your prayer is broken. And Aisha said, they're comparing us to, to donkeys and dogs. Right? And we even have times where Aisha is correcting the prophet, peace be upon him, or or she's even, what's the word? Um, he's not giving the full answer. And so, so then she essentially completes an answer for him. So the point I'm making also is that part of our contemporary culture is that you should somehow feel bad that you are struggling with these ayahs. And I'm saying the wives of the prophet did. Sabrine, you newly raised your hand. Yeah, I think um, just based on this recent discussion, the way the inheritance of the men and women is divided, that maybe it was a way to ease um, women rights into a society that didn't value women rather than just a full-on in-your-face, there's mm -hmm. everything, and then it gets rejected fully. I think that's probably some of the logic here, you know, and that's also the argument given for 
the prescriptions regarding slavery itself, that if it did an immediate, complete emancipation of all slaves, it wouldn't have worked. But it did set up a system where over the course of a couple of generations, then slavery should be completely removed from society. Um, those are explanations which will work for some people. You know, that like if I already want to believe that this works, then those explanations will work for me. But if I'm on the, the the receiving end, if I'm the victim, then you know those explanations are all well and good, but I'm still the victim. Make sense? Yeah. Shayla. So I don't think our generation has problem understanding that. I mean, that makes sense. I think it's the you know the fact that this has this is a law from Allah today for us right now, mm -hmm. and that we can't evolve it. We can't say okay. This was, you know, revealed at this time in this way. And so, and we understand that that was appropriate then, but now we believe that they're equal. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I think we're, where we struggle, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's been sort of the thrust of our, of our, of the whole discussion, right. yeah. Is there a constant rework of interpretation as time goes? Because I feel like the jurists nowadays, they get, you know, overwhelmed or overworked if you try to reinterpret their interpretation. So, so again, speaking of of the scholars that I would turn to, uh, I mean, one of the fundamentals of Islamic scholar of legal scholarship, if someone is asking you for like an answer, like a legal answer to the question, you have to know their culture, right? And so, there's this common practice of here. Let's listen to this sheikh from our village back home. 4,000 miles away. That person is not going to know your culture, right? This is all the same point I make about celebrity preachers, that if the celebrity preacher is not from your zip code or near your zip code, they don't know your life. And so they're the best they're going to be able to give you our general answers. And so built in again <clears throat> is when you're trying to come up with an answer, you're looking for the best answer for that person or for that community in facilitating the relationship with the law that's what you're looking for and so i've given this example before three different students will come to my office all struggling with alcohol demographic wise they all might be the same coming from the same demographics same age same everything and they might get three completely different answers from me or this person has one context this person has a different context this person has a different context i'm saying that's textbook islamic law that's not the exception uh, uh, but one of the problems is like, like you mentioned, Sabrina, that, you know, everyone's like overworked, but, uh, many of the people that are scholars are not trained in the actual, uh, philosophy of Islamic law. They're trained in, all right, if you got a question, let me find this book 400 years old and give you an answer from that book. Oh my God. And we're constantly following them. Well, I don't know how much we're actually following them, except, you know, when they agree with us. So. That's why I'm in this class. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections about anything at all? All right, inshallah. We will continue. We're still on Aya. 13. Uh, 13. Yeah. And we will have more fun in, in the Ayahs over the course of the next week, inshallah. 
Oh yeah, it's going to get even more fun. Inheritance was the easy conversation. All righty, I've already introduced what's a, another forthcoming conversation. You may or may not have picked up on it. You can look at the eyes that are forthcoming to see. I read ahead. <laughs> I wasn't pleased. Okay. Ready. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu Allah ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah tell reward you all, inshallah, and we'll continue tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam.